Hello and welcome to Coma Deconstructed, What You Need to Know. This webinar will be presented by DECRA Consultant Callum Christie and DECRA Principal Process Safety Specialist Clive Salas. You're all in listen-only mode. If you could please stay muted and ask any questions in the chat panel on the right-hand side of your screen and we'll answer them in the Q&A session. You'll receive a follow-up um, with a recording of the webinar along with answers to any questions we don't get to and details uh, for you to register for the next COMA webinar in the series. Uh, thank you, enjoy, and I will now hand you over to Callum and Clive. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the first in what is a series of DECRA webinars where we look to deconstruct and explain the COMA regulations in a way that hopefully provides you with information, knowledge and an understanding of what the regulations mean for yourself and indeed your organisation. My name is Callum Christie. I'm a consultant for DECRA Organisational and Process Safety and I'm joined today by my esteemed colleague, Mr Clive DeSalis, who I'll explain um, and describe for you and introduce in a minute. But first, if I could just touch upon the three main objectives of what we're going to look for in the webinar today, and that is to understand what a coma report is and how it differs from a Cerveso or a HAZOP. The second objective we've got is to understand what the coma tiers are and where to find the relevant and right information to ascertain where an organisation sits within these tiers. And the third and final objective of our webinar today is to understand what information is required in each of the six coma report volumes or otherwise known as sections. So, as I mentioned, with me today is my esteemed colleague, uh, Mr. Clive DeSalis. Um, Clive is a very experienced principal process safety um, specialist here at DECRA, where he supports and advises clients in multiple industries with process and legislative safety requirements. As well as this, he is a member of the IEC committee and has been since its very inception, where he writes the standards for cyber and safety instrumented systems. He is the vice chair of ICME Safety and Loss Prevention, is an expert witness to the courts of England, Wales and Scotland, and he holds a, a number of membership registrations and positions in industry recognised body. And on top of all of that, in addition to this, in 2013, Clive was named and voted Engineer of the Year by the Institute of Measurement and Control. Hi, and welcome, Clive DeSalis. Thank you indeed. It's, uh, that's a lot to live up to, but uh, this uh, seminar talk will be good. I'm looking forward to it. Great stuff. So if we could go right in, Clive, and question number one I've got for you is, what is a coma report and why is it important? Well, a COMAR report, a COMAR stands for Control of Major Accidents and Hazards. So you're writing for the uh, competent authority, which in the UK's case is the Health and Safety Executive, and you're writing describing the process, where it is, what the risks are, and that you've planned the emergency services. It's that last bit that's actually in the Safeso Directive which was written by the EU after the accident in Seveso in Northern Italy. And so the Comar report, we're required to produce every five years uh, for the local authority and the competent authority. Okay, brilliant. And Clive, does this Comar report differ in any way from a Seveso report or a HAZOP? Well, a HAZOP came originally for, after the Flixborough disaster, which happened before uh, the Seveso disaster. 
In the Flixborough disaster, there was a government inquiry here in the UK. It happened near Grimsby. And the health and safety executive said to the um, public inquiry that they intended all chemical plant in future to do the ICI system of HAZOP, hazard and operability studies. So even today, HAZOP is a major part of a COMAR report. It's quite important. Uh, you can put in alternatives to HAZOP, but HAZOP is the one that's written there. It was following the Saverso disaster in northern Italy that uh, the Saverso directive was pu published. And some European countries, like Poland, for example, call it a Saverso report. Most European countries, including the UK, call it a Comar report. It is, in fact, the same thing. Okay. So it, whether you colleagues talk about is a save or so report or as a coma report it is actually the same thing okay interesting uh, in terms of the coma report itself clive does it need to be renewed at all or how, how long does it last yeah i started to mention that it was renewed every five years um and every five years is important but it's a uh, an important part of DECRA's philosophy that you do everything you can to reduce the amount of work you as customers have to do to renew a Comar report. The Comar mm. report has to say what it is now. You have to show that you've continued to talk to the emergency services and continue to plan with them to make sure that if anything should happen on your site, you really can get enough ambulances, fire engines, or whatever is needed to the site, which can include police cordoning off part of the area for you. Okay, interesting. Brilliant. Okay, I'll move on to the next question I've got here, Clive, and I'll switch the slide and put up these three tiers. So I believe um, there's three tiers under, under coma, Clive. Could you tell me a bit about them? What are they? Well, there are two tiers that count under the regulations themselves, upper tier and lower tier. But the ideal for us is to uh, reduce the quantities of specified dangerous substances and get your site into non-coma. So if you take the kind of business philosophy that you sometimes have in just-in-time kind of work, um, then you're reducing the quantity of what's held on site and you can get yourself outside the Comar tiers altogether. And that's helpful. Upper tier uh, engages absolutely everything in the regulations. Lower tier is the same, but not as onerous. So parts of it can be missed out. The bit that you do have to do in lower tier is plan the emergency services, which is the core of Comar. Okay. And does a site or organisation, Clive, have any choice in relation to the tiers themselves? Uh, no, the tiers are actually specified in the regulations themselves. So in the regulations, you will look up the chemicals you have and there will be two columns that name the quantities uh, on the site. And there will um, be the minimum threshold, which is the beginning of lower tier, the next threshold value, if you're that or above, you're in the upper tier region. Now, amongst all of that, you have to aggregate what you've got on site and DECRA can help you sort that out. Um, so you can have two or three chemicals where you fall short of upper tier, but because they're at 
I'm going to be over the upper tier requirement in total. It's that kind of aggregation, which is a formula. So the quantities themselves and the types of chemicals on the danger they pose to people and the environment is all specified in the regulations themselves. So, no, you don't really have a say over it. Okay. I think, Clive, if I just show, I think I was looking at this earlier on. Is this the columns that you refer to? Okay. Yeah, that's it. You can see on the right there, it says lower tier requirements and upper tier requirements. So, taking that first one, which is acute toxic, anything over five tonnes is going to be lower tier. But as soon as you get to 20 tonnes and more, that's upper tier. Okay, brilliant. H H1 is a type of toxicity. Don't worry about that at the moment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we'll focus on the basics. Okay, Clive. I'll move on to this. I'll put three um, of what I believe are the six sections of of the Coma report. Could you just describe to me what goes into each of them, explain a bit about them? Well, first, it's important to say that our competent authority um here in the uk is the health and safety executive they don't actually care whether you call it a volume or a section or a part you can call it anything you like it was the industry guidance that called it volume so for example uk pyre the uk petroleum industry they called them volumes now you always begin a report whatever you call these volumes you always begin a report with these three um parts so volume one is your policy and clearly your major accident prevention policy is going to define how the company should prevent the accident both now and in the future volume two then defines the safety management system now it's important to notice that nothing you say in the system should ever contradict the policy If it does, you need to think again. But safety management system follows from the policy. It's not the other way around. Don't write the safety management system as a volume first and write the policy afterwards. That that makes no sense. That's the tail wagging the dog, to use our euphemism. So major accident policy always comes first in the Kermar report. Second comes the safety management system itself. And then volume three is describe your process plant that you've got, the process plant overall, all the processes within it, where the site is and where you are relative to the emergency services and um, streams and rivers and all the things that you can contaminate. So volume three, yes, it's the process description, but the description includes where it all is. Okay. Okay, that makes sense to me, Clive, for the first three. And if I move across to the next slide with four, five, and six, could you tell me a bit about these? Yes. Uh, volume four and five, you start off by doing them as the same. You will have a list of major accident hazards, but when you calculate them in detail and you do the analysis, you'll find that some of them are not actually major accident hazards. It's right that you declared them as potential major accident hazards, but in the end, they will split between volume five, which is all the actual major accident hazards, and any that aren't but were considered a volume four. They're significant, but they're not major accident hazards. 
Now, volume four is important because what you're really saying to the competent authority is have a look at these. If you agree they're not major accident hazards, in five years' time, they're not going to appear again. We've declared what they are, and that's it. Volume six is what the Kermar regulations, the Saverso directive, is all about. Is plan your emergency services. So for a couple of the sites uh, that I did the Kermar report first for, the police held the corridor open for the ambulances to get to the site, as well as the fire brigades. They had two different routes, for the one for the ambulances, one for the fire brigades. And you can imagine all these emergency services have to work together. You cannot dictate to any of them what they will do, but you can talk to them and you can plan it together. The competent authority only wants to see that you've done that planning and you've talked to each other. So that is really quite important. When we go back to volume five, in the case that they were major accident hazards, part two of that needs to say, okay, these are the barriers that should prevent the major accident hazards, and these are the safeguards that should mitigate them. And all of those barriers and safeguards must be managed according to volume two, the safety management system. Now, MATES is then the identical part. It's major accident to the environment instead of major accident hazards. But it's the same concept. Could you really uh, poison the environment or damage the environment in some way? And after all of that, you have to show that what you're left with, the risk is as low as reasonably practicable, which is what ALARP means. Okay, brilliant. So just so I get that right, in, in six there, Clive, it's yep. the site or the organization's responsibility to contact the emergency responses, not the competition yes, authority, is. as you mentioned. Yeah. And no, the site, site talks to the uh, emergency services themselves. The competent authority wants proof that you've done so. Got you. OK, that makes sense. And in terms of under four general significant hazards, have you got any examples or, or anything under there that would go into that area of the report? The, the trigger for this is when you analyse it and the risk to, let's take the major accident hazard example, the risk to killing people, if you find that it's actually one in a hundred million chance of killing someone, then the HSE's own document, Reducing Risk Protecting People, says they don't recommend their own inspectors look at it. So there you started out with something that you thought might be a major accident hazard, but you found it was so unlikely that it's still a significant hazard if it ever happened, but it's very, very unlikely. Therefore, it's not an MAH. If the HSE, the competent authority, ultimately agree, what you're saying to them is, I've declared it now, you've examined it, we're not going to talk about it again in the future volume in, in five years' time. Got you. Okay, so I think I'm getting a good understanding of the six volumes of the report there. Thanks very much, Clive. So if I could go into this next area, just briefly, I suppose, on this bit, because I understand that we're covering it in the next episode or the next uh, within the series um, of the COMA yep. deconstructed. But I understand that the COMA report is now required to be a living document. 
Can you tell yes. me what that means? That's actually a change because when it came out in 2009, the first response of the HSE was to get their specialist inspector departments to write their own SRAMs. Now, SRAM meant Safety Requirement Assessment Manual. And so they wrote what they wanted to see in a report. But because it was each department writing their own, the response by the public were the uh, engineers was to write a, a response of what they wanted to see, but it's like a document written for specialists by specialists. Mm -hmm. And the one people who actually need the safety were left out. So safety is only real when ordinary people understand it, agree to it and follow it. And that's where it becomes a living document. So the top level, the senior management at the HSE, including the parts of the government, said, hang on, this needs to be a living document. Now, that's a lot easier said that it is actually done. And I think in a future series, series we'll be giving actual examples of that, um, to, of making it a living document and useful. But it is important because when it becomes a living document, if you make a change to the process plant in terms of the quantity of chemicals you handle, you can either drop something in or out of the Kermar report. It's a living document, so you can actually change it. But another example of a living document is where uh, one site we had a written escape route from a particular building. And only when you plotted it on a diagram did you realize that you were asking people to run along a dual carriageway with all the cars whizzing by you. And that isn't practical at all. And yet, on the same site, there was another escape route. So it didn't cost them anything to say, let's change those words. Don't use that escape route. Use another one that makes sense. Right. Is, is that the picture you sent through to me, Clive? Have I, have I got that on file? Uh, we have talked about a picture. So if you have it to hand, I can, I can talk it through. Is it this one? Yes, that's it. You see that yellow line on the left-hand side? That's the, actually the edge of a dual carriageway. So if you get people out of the building there, the one place they can't run to is the entrance and the exit up at the top. But they can go to the exit, the emergency exit by the drum park out of the bottom and stay away from all the storage tanks. So it's a good example of... To ordinary people, they don't have to know what the nature of the chemical is that's being stored or how flammable it is or anything like that. They just have to know, go down the bottom, across the bottom and get to the ambulances that way. Hmm. We had a similar example of another site where um, in the new regulations for a HAZOP, regulations, the new standard for HAZOP, if you're going to invite people to do a HAZOP, then it says tell them what the HAZOP's about. Now that, of course, is common sense. So you're supposed to write a briefing note. The briefing note describes what it is they're going to study. And I said to the director of safety on this site uh, on uh, the East Coast, I don't want to write this. And he got out for me what the Comar report had said about this process. And I did a copy and paste and produced the briefing note and sent it to everyone. That was great. 
Um, the operators must have sent a delegation to the process engineer because the process engineer had the courage to phone me up and said, unfortunately, nobody understands a word of this. And it illustrates quite well how if specialists write it, you can sun you can sometimes end up with something that sounds or is technically right, but nobody understands it. And I had to say to the process engineer, I had to remind him that he told me that the HSE were visiting in two weeks' time. And Mm. I said, you're now telling me that nobody understands a word of what you've already told them, but the HSE have read it. So (laughs) the only choice you've got is not to change anything you've told them, but to add sentences now to put it into a context where you can understand it. But they had to do that fairly quickly. But it's another illustration that you can get into the mess of writing a Comar document that actually nobody understands. Then it's not a living document. You really have to have to show it to everyone yeah. and everyone has to understand it. Absolutely. Yeah, that's very clear, Clive. Thanks very much. OK, um, so, Clive, I've got a couple of questions from the audience that I'm just going to get up uh, here. Um, if I can go through them um, one by one. So the first one here from the audience is to understand what a coma report is um, and how it differs. Um, so, yeah, so can I get an understanding of what a coma report is and how it differs from a Cerveso or a Hazop? Oh, sorry, that's not the objective. Sorry, <laughs> reading off the no, wrong that's fine. That's fine. Uh, a coma report and a Cerveso report are the same thing. And uh, a HAZOP is just a subset of that you need to have uh, and go into uh, your report. Yeah, so as we as we covered earlier. So if the volumes of hazardous substances on site varies greatly across the year, how do I ascertain which report is required? Well, technically, you have to include the largest volume you have. But let's be clear, it's not the largest volume ever. They're not asking for record breaking or or some extreme. They're asking for the largest credible volume that you can have. But, yes, you have to have all the largest volumes that can actually happen into your Comar equation, your aggregate. Okay, understood. I hope that answers the question there. Can you do surveys to ascertain what level of report is needed for a site? Yeah, a survey is quite helpful because we can do a survey that helps you understand uh, the extent the Comar report should cover and, and why you're in it. But the action of telling you why you're in the Comar report gives you the choice to reduce some of the chemical quantities and either move the whole thing into lower tier or ideally get out of lower tier altogether and get make it non-coma. Okay. So, yes, we can, we can do uh, a survey and help people actually get reduce the amount of work involved. Okay, yeah, and, and that's something DECRA can do as an organisation. Yeah. Okay. Um, and the next question I've got here on my screen, uh, Clive, if a report needs to be live, how does that generally work with in terms of access and security? etc. Well, security is quite a problem um, in that uh, you don't want this falling into the wrong hands. Uh, Volume 3 described the processes, where they are, and Volume 5, what are the major accident hazards, tells terrorists, sadly, exactly where to hit the plant. 
So you really don't want the ordinary public being able to read the document if it falls into their hands accidentally. So security is quite a problem. On the other hand, because it's a live document, you need everyone within your company to have their say in the report. So there are two forms of security, just speaking in general terms. The uh, locking of a view of the screen, that's a locked PDF does that. And that's almost like a locked box. So it's giving everyone a key and you can open the box. The other form is encryption. Although encryption is in one sense better, it's like the Enigma machines during the war that used to code everything. The problem then is you need to give everyone in the company copies of the key, the security key. And this is hundreds of copies of keys. And as soon as you duplicate keys so often, you also lose security. So I suggest people start with the locked box approach, the simple locked box, box approach, and all your employees know what the key is. When you come to the final report, then you we will do whatever you want as a security level on that. Okay, perfect. Yeah, great answer. And the final question I've got from the audience here, Clive, today is, are there any restrictions on flammable aerosols? So they're talking number, volume, anything mm. like that? There's no real restriction on the number. The issue is the total quantity of chemical that you have within one building. And aerosols are so small in terms of chemical quantities. Remember that the threshold was in tons, so it's the mass, it's not the volume of yep. the aerosol. They are so small in quantity that you could have thousands of aerosols before you reach the Comar figures. They do matter a lot in terms of the risk to the fire brigade, so they will be concerned about that. But here the guidance to follow is what's called HSG 51, which is Health and Safety Guidance 51, that covers storage of things like aerosols. Okay, brilliant. I think that answers the question, Clive. It brings us nicely to the, the end of uh, today's webinar and, and, and session. So thank you very much uh, for taking the time to, to answer some of these questions. Um, I believe that, as we mentioned, uh, this is a deconstructed coma series of webinars. So the details of the next webinar um, will follow in, in future email communication in terms of the topic and, and when, where to find that. Um, Clive? Thank you very much for taking the time to speak to me and explain to me uh, the coma regulations uh, as part of this webinar and um, have a nice day. You're welcome. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you very much.